Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica, Season Two, Episode Fifty-Eight: The Entropy of Victory. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host Samuel Hume. The first English civil war is over. Charles I, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, has been defeated by a coalition of English parliamentarians and Scottish Covenanters. But while the king has been militarily defeated, he has not given up. The anti-royalist alliance was a fragile thing. And with the king no longer a military threat, the strongest bond which tied them all together suddenly evaporated. Even before his outright defeat, the entropy of victory, the wonderfully useful phrase coined by Mike Duncan, had been eroding the alliances of his enemies. Now, with the king in the custody of the Scots, questions which had been put off until after the military emergency could no longer be kicked into the long grass. Now that they'd won. What had they been fighting for? What would the future of the Stuart kingdoms look like? What religion would they follow? How would they be governed? What happens now? And when different factions came to these questions and found that their answers were different and often mutually exclusive, that spelt trouble. And there was the king, sat in his comfortable imprisonment. Doing his best to fan the flames of that trouble, so that in the turmoil he would find his way back on top. But Charles will have to be careful. Surely he knew the danger of playing with fire. Now the king was not wrong in seeing cracks in the alliances of his enemies, not only between the Covenanters and Parliament, but between factions within the Covenanters and within Parliament. We will focus on the growing split between the Scots and the English Parliament next week. Today we will see how the entropy of victory well and truly sets in within the victorious Parliament. Parliament had long been divided between the political Presbyterian faction, sometimes called the Peace faction, and the Independents, sometimes called the War faction. We are retreading old steps here. 
but with the defeat of the king, these internal divisions take on much greater importance. Of course, these are terms of convenience, rather than something like modern political parties, and moderates in both groupings would vote or align with the other, depending on the circumstances. But there were also MPs and lords who staked out their positions and dug in their heels on specific issues. These are the people who essentially defined their factions through their influence, political skill, and personal prestige. The political Presbyterians were, naturally, far more supportive of the Scottish alliance, and hoped to bring about the further reformation of the Church of England along Presbyterian lines. The Solemn League and Covenant was a touchstone of Presbyterian policy. As the Covenanters would soon learn, however, the Presbyterians were not super keen on completely following the Scottish line in either religion or politics. Key Presbyterian figures were the Earl of Essex, Sir Edward Massey, General of the Western Association Army, and the MP Denzel Hollers. With the war won, the Presbyterian faction began to grow in popularity and influence, as a deal with the king seemed possible. This popularity was not universal, however, especially where it really counted. The independents were those who favoured the utter defeat of the king, and ideally without relying on the Scottish Covenanters too much, especially once it became clear that the price of Scottish involvement and the Scots' main objective in intervening in England was the establishment of a Presbyterian system of religious uniformity. For the independents, one of the main reasons they were fighting this war in the first place was for freedom of religion. For non-Catholics, that is. Religious uniformity, whether under Lordianism, Presbyterianism, or the pre-Lord Church of England, was tyranny. Full stop. For radical independence, the aim was for widespread religious toleration. To allow congregations to minister the way they wanted to, without a clerical hierarchy, telling them they were wrong, and otherwise getting between an Englishman and his god. The Church of England had fragmented during the war, and it would continue to do so into the 1650s, and English Protestantism now came in several new exciting flavours. There were still some Lordians knocking around, and there were plenty of moderate Episcopalians, who wanted the Church back to the way it was before Lord ruined it, bishops and all. And there were, of course, Presbyterians, who wanted presbyteries established across the kingdom and a Calvinist doctrine. And there were other Calvinists who wanted that doctrine, but without presbyteries. But added to these old favourites were the new flavours, which either sprung out of the Civil War years, or gained greater popularity during them. The Baptists, the Quakers, the Fifth Monarchists, and so on. Under Presbyterianism, or even a restored Episcopalianism, the other sects would be suppressed. Only under the toleration of the independents would they all be permitted to flourish, even if they were deeply hostile to one another. Notable independents were Sir Henry Vane, Sir Arthur Hazelrig, and of course, Oliver Cromwell. It's also important to note that the independent faction had a lot of overlap with political radicalism with groups like the Levellers and the Diggers, who we will talk about more in a future episode, and they also enjoyed significant influence in the new model army, both among the officers and the soldiers. But in terms of geography, the independent cause was strongest, mostly in London and the southeast of England. They held national influence not from a widespread popular mandate, but key positions in Parliament, 
and the army. Generally speaking, the Presbyterians held sway in the House of Lords, with Essex dominating, and the Independents controlled the House of Commons, with Sir Henry Vane chief among them. And as their differences became greater, their battles for influence spilled out of Parliament proper into the committees and into the streets. The two houses had fallen out over the future of the new model army, for example. In January 1646, with the war clearly winding down, the Commons tried to pass an ordinance to extend the life of both the Committee for the Army and the Treasurers at War. The House of Lords, dominated by Essex, resisted, seeing this as a beautiful opportunity to hobble, if not dissolve, the New Model Army. Critics of the New Model sought to send reinforcements and supplies to the Western Association Army of Edward Massey. Massey was a devout Presbyterian, and the Presbyterian faction hoped to use his army as a counterbalance to the new model. Hopefully, just the fact that another army existed, and that therefore the independents didn't hold a monopoly over the military, would be enough. But actual violence between the parliamentary factions was, I'm sure, at the back of everyone's minds as a worst-case scenario. They just fought a war against the king. Parliamentary infighting was hardly unimaginable. Presbyterian hostility to the new model didn't spring from nowhere. The Lords hadn't liked it from the start, of course, since its foundation meant that they were effectively cut out of their traditional military roles. But their opposition to it came from much more than wounded martial pride. Increasingly, the new model army came to be seen as an instrument of sectarianism and religious radicalism, combined with the threat of military force. A Presbyterian minister, Thomas Edwards, published an enormous work called The Gangrena, in which he railed against religious separatism and independency, with the New Model Army at its centre. After pressure from the Lords and various Presbyterian figures in the capital, the London Common Council issued a remonstrance to Parliament. In this, they praised the successes of the Scottish Army of the Covenant, but said nothing about the New Model Army. At least, nothing explicit, and nothing positive. Instead, the Remonstrants urged Parliament to restrain the growing religious extremism throughout the country, and to allow the City of London to retake command of its trained bands. Both of these were implicit attacks on the New Model. The Lords graciously listened to these calls for religious control, calls which were uh, coming from inside the house, and ordered that the Solemn League and Covenant be sworn by the entire army, for both officers and enlisted men, and for the enforcement of the standing ban on lay preaching. This might have done something to stem the growth of religious radicalism within the army, but the Commons blocked it. Presbyterians in the Commons continued to apply pressure throughout the summer, channelling the resentment over high taxes and the continuing war in Ireland to these ends. From these angles, they sought the disbanding and redeployment of army units to fight in Ireland. The first would alleviate the costs of maintaining the soldiers, the second would bring an end to the Irish ulcer, and both would weaken the growing political influence of the new model army. This strategy might have been effective, but then in September, the political Presbyterians were hit with a disaster. The Earl of Essex suddenly died, 
Not from battle or anything particularly adventurous, but from a chill he caught while hunting, which caused a stroke. Essex's standing had been damaged by the failures of his military command, but he was still a mighty and influential figure in Parliament, able to control the Lords and wielding significant influence in the Commons. The Presbyterians had no one to fill his boots. With his death, the Earldom of Essex once again fell out of use. Independence in the Commons successfully pushed through a motion to disband Massey's Western Association Army, which Fairfax and Henry Ireton, at the head of a force of the New Model Army, supervised the day before Essex's funeral. The New Model Army was now unrivaled. Over the next few months, more attacks by the Presbyterians against the army would take place, as they saw in it an existential threat to their political objectives. Likewise, the independents would protect it, as they saw in it the means to execute their agenda. Soon, though, the men of the new model army would make clear to both factions of politicians that they had their own political desires, and the politicians had better stop quoting laws to men with swords. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Another theatre of this political war between the Independents and the Presbyterians was Ireland. Last week, I mentioned Lords Inchiquin and Broghill, the two men in charge of government forces in Munster who had defected to Parliament after their cessation. Well, as we talked about in episode 247, cleverly titled Inchiquin and Broghill, the two men had a very strained relationship. Both had been appalled by the cessation and switched sides, but from that point on, their agendas diverged. Inchiquin almost immediately sought to negotiate with Ormond, the man whose leadership he just rejected, because rejecting his leadership meant rejecting the cessation, and rejecting the cessation meant his territory was back on the menu for nearby Confederate forces. If only someone had told him that rejecting a truce meant rejecting a truce. Apart from appealing to Ormond and his network in Ireland, Inchiquin would find his allies in Parliament 
among the Presbyterian faction, who were themselves deeply enmeshed in Irish networks. Essex's half-brother was the Earl of Clanricard, just as an example. The Presbyterian agenda for Ireland would involve compromise with both the English and the Scots in Ireland, combined with the Confederate Peace Faction. However, the independents at Westminster dominated the committee of both kingdoms, and so controlled the subcommittee on Irish affairs. Henry Vane and his allies sat on this subcommittee, and they took plenty of advice from members of the so-called Boyle Group, named after the Boyle Earls of Cork. These were new English civil servants, merchants, politicians, and nobility who wanted to see the downfall of Ormond and the Butler family, and they'd made vast profits from the plantations of Ireland and wanted to see them continue. Not just for base greed, though, but in order to fully reform the Irish, to civilise them, and bring about the end of superstitious Catholicism. If that required the wholesale redistribution of land and a massacre or two, well, that was a price they were willing for the Irish to pay. The Lord's Justices, William Parsons and John Burleys, were among these men, dismissed and imprisoned by Ormond for their hardline stance on the war. Broghill was a Boyle, the son of the first Earl of Cork, and so he found plenty of allies in London whenever he visited. Over the winter of 1645-46, the independence in Parliament forced the appointment of a new parliamentarian Lord Deputy of Ireland, Viscount Lyle. Lyle was himself an important independent, and he was good friends with Lord Brokehill. They'd studied together, they'd fought together at the start of the war in Ireland. Back then, Lyle's father, the Earl of Leicester, had been Lord Deputy in absentia, after the impeachment of the Earl of Strafford, and before the appointment of the Marquess of Ormond. That's a lot of names and titles, but the important thing is that Lyle was an independent, he had familial connections in Ireland, and he was a close ally to Broghill. Lyle's appointment was also a deliberate effort to try and supplant the Scottish Covenanter influence in the island of Ireland. And, of course, it offered a rival to Lord Deputy Ormond, who was a royalist and hated enemy of the Boyle group. Now, Lord Deputy Lyle, along with five more independents, were added to the Irish committee, stacking it in their favour and giving them an overwhelming majority. They backed their friend Broghill to the hilt, and undermined Lord President Inchiquin every chance they got. When Inchiquin was absent from Munster, the committee authorised Broghill to spend the war chest however he saw fit. Inchiquin's military forces were reduced bit by bit by the committee, he was ordered to lay up his weapons and ammunition until Lyle sent him new instructions. He was ordered to return 300 pikes to the new Lord Deputy, even though they were already in the hands of his troops. New supplies of weapons and ammunition were kept on their ships in Cork Harbour, instead of being delivered to Inchiquin, on the orders of the committee. In contrast, Broghill went from strength to strength. £6,000 were earmarked for the use of the Lord President of Munster in fighting the war, Instead of being sent to Inchiquin, who was, you know, the Lord President of Munster, it was given to Broghill to spend as he saw fit. The committee sent Broghill back to Ireland with the suggestion that he should take command of four regiments of reinforcements and command these separately from Inchiquin's chain of command. Broghill's commission made it clear who he answered to. This list included Lord Deputy Viscount Lyle, Parliament, the Subcommittee of Irish Affairs, and that was it. 
Inchiquin was cut out of the loop. The Lord President wasn't stupid, he knew what was happening. He wrote to a friend complaining about it, and used a pretty rubbish code to try and hide who he was talking about, literally just calling them by their wives' names. It's hardly enigma. But as closely as these allies worked together, Broghill and the Irish independents, Vane and the English independents, they had different priorities and end goals. The Irish independents wanted to see the fall of Ormond, the expansion of plantation, and the utter defeat of the Confederacy. But in Westminster, the English independents saw their primary objective as the defeat of the Presbyterian faction there. So once news of the Ormond peace broke, and then news that Rinuccini had forced the Confederacy to reject it, the English Presbyterians struck. Ormond would have to side with Parliament now, and he'd side with the Presbyterian faction if they had a say in it, so they eagerly worked to shore up their position in Irish affairs. Inchiquin was praised in a multitude of pamphlets which appeared in the following days, emphasising his importance in Irish affairs. The Presbyterians seized back control of the Irish committee, and informed Broghill that his special access to supplies had been stopped. Inchiquin himself took the initiative, and ordered his men to simply seize the supplies which had been denied to him earlier in the year, and the Presbyterians began to reach out to Ormond. In the face of this sudden political assault, the English independents, to quote Patrick Little, abandoned their Irish policies in order to wrest the political initiative back from the Presbyterians, end quote. The independents established the Derby House Committee in October, and after months of attacking Ormond, as a backslider, a traitor, a royalist, a closet Catholic, and an untrustworthy so-and-so, they began to try and win him over. The Irish independents, understandably confused and annoyed by this abrupt change, tried their best to change with it. Broghill attempted to fix his relationship with Inchiquin and, funnily enough, with Ormond himself. Many of the Boyle group did the same, including Parsons, who buried his hatchet with the Marquis, and spoke of how much he'd always liked Ormond. It was a free-for-all, with everyone vying for influence, and with the fate of Irish Protestantism on the line. And then, just as quickly as this all kicked off, it ended. Ormond rejected parliamentary overtures, for the time being, and the Irish and English factions went back to their game, with Broghill demanding a command separate from Inchiquin. But the trust between the English and Irish independents was fractured. The Irish had seen how quickly their apparently shared agenda would be discarded for any advantage in Westminster, and they wouldn't allow themselves to simply follow along anymore. Broghill's allies, Parsons among them, put forward a plan to the English Parliament which set out how Irish affairs should be conducted. It was, to again quote little, a radical Irish Protestant agenda. One of the main points of this plan was the insistence that Viscount Lyle, who was the new Lord Deputy on Parliament's command after all, should actually go to Ireland, and to Munster specifically. His arrival would supplant the authority of Inchiquin, elevate Broghill, and impress upon Parliament that they needed to send more support to their forces in the Western Kingdom. There was a war on, after all. The arrival of Lyle and his reinforcements in Munster also helped to further sideline the Covenanters in Ulster, an ever-present objective of the independence, after all. These proposals were submitted on the 10th of December, and the same day the Derby House Committee, set up by and for the English independence, 
ordered Lyle to go to Ireland. Soon an expeditionary force was gathered, Lyle put at its head, and the Derby House Committee assembled the Lord Deputy's Privy Council. All but a few of the members were Irish independents, members of the Boyle Group. A few token Presbyterians were included, Inchiquin was one of them, as was his right as the Lord President of Munster, but he was far from secure or welcome on this council. Soon after Lyle arrived in Munster, welcomed at Kinsale by Broghill, of course, Inchiquin was excluded from the council. He complained that Lyle was relying entirely on the advice and resources of Broghill, all so that Inchiquin could be cut out of the loop as much as possible. And then the political winds changed again. In February 1647, Ormond opened up negotiations with Parliament. Just as had happened the year before, the Presbyterians struck, and this time most of the major independent figures in Irish affairs were en route to Munster and unable to intervene. The Presbyterians asserted their influence over the Derby House Committee, and by March they had a majority. Lyle's commission as Lord Deputy was due for renewal, and they blocked it. Two Lords Justices would take his place. This cleared the way for dealing with Ormond, since now the legitimacy of Ormond's position wasn't being questioned by Lyle also being a Lord Deputy. Presbyterian control over Derby House meant that legal charges levelled at Inchiquin while the Independents were in control were now quashed, and Inchiquin reasserted his authority as Lord President of Munster. The political infighting between parliamentary factions was far from over. Inchiquin had not backed down, resigned, or been replaced, and Broghill had not secured his position independent of Inchiquin. There would be a reckoning. Like I said at the start, the title of today's episode is a phrase coined by friend of the show and host of the Revolutions podcast, Mike Duncan. He's bringing revolutions to a close with a series of appendices, where he looks back on the ten revolutions he's covered and tries to find common threads which bind them all together. What makes them all revolutions, despite all their differences? And what struck me about these appendices is how well they work when applied to all the events he's covered, and especially how well they fit with the events we're talking about now. So if you aren't already listening to Revolutions, then I recommend giving the whole show a listen. But if you're looking for a concise mini-series that sums up nine years of podcasts, start on Season 11, Episode 1, Appendix 1, Coming Full Circle. That's my fanboying out of the way. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Coventry, Liam Hunter, and the Earl of Waldegrave, Dave Cardena. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, please leave a review, recommend it to a friend, or post about the show on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.